You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. So Yahweh said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to Yahweh, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Then Yahweh spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it, Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contribution of their gift, all the wave offerings of the people of Israel. I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it, all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to Yahweh, I give to you the first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to Yahweh, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to Yahweh, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras. But the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. But their flesh shall be yours as the breast that is waved, and as the right thigh are yours. 
all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to Yahweh, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before Yahweh for you and for your offspring with you. And Yahweh said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance, in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and among the people of Israel that they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to Yahweh, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to Yahweh, a tithe of the tithe, and your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. So you shall also present a contribution to Yahweh from all your tithes which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give Yahweh's contribution to Aaron the priest. Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due to Yahweh from each its best part is to be dedicated. Therefore you shall say to them, When you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as a produce of the threshing floor and as produce of the winepress. And you may eat it in any place, you and your households. For it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best of it. But you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 634 of this podcast. Today is June 10th, 2023, also a Saturday, and it looks beautiful outside from my office window where I am recording right now. We've had a lot of rain here recently, and it has caused the grass and the trees and the bushes to green right up which is great. It's the greenest we've seen Colorado since we moved here in late 2019. And in this episode, I want to talk more about the economy. I want to talk about the economy and I want to talk more specifically about how God cares about economic conditions. He he does. He cares about what we call economics. But first, let's touch on Numbers chapter 18, which is what I read for you at the top of the episode, where we have the duties of the priests and the Levites being outlined. We have God setting apart one of the 12 tribes of Israel, which, by way of refresher, are descended from Jacob's son, Levi. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, with whom God made a covenant that he would make of their offspring, of their descendants, a great nation, a great people, more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore, at least in terms of our ability to comprehend or count. That Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those 12 sons was Levi. Why Levi? Why that son to choose to set apart to say the descendants of that son would be the consecrated ones, the ones committed to service. Why that son and his descendants chosen by God to not have a share in the inheritance in the way that the other tribes did, in the way that the other sons did, in the way that the other 11 houses of Israel did. And the simple answer, if I'm being straight with you, the simple answer is, I don't know. I'm sure God knows. I don't know. Why Levi? But maybe as we go along, maybe as we ponder it, we search it out, maybe we find something of a clue. Maybe we find something of an answer. What we do know is that God selected the tribe of Levi. He chose the Levites to be his portion. And he consecrated them to himself and he gave them work to do. And he didn't give them a share in the inheritance of the promised land in the same way that he gave the other 11. And that's okay. It's okay for God to give special honor to some and also to not give certain gifts to the same. In the New Testament, this takes a little bit of a different form, but it's the same principle and it's the same God. God has the same character in the New Testament. When Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, when he writes in his first epistle to the church at Corinth about different spiritual gifts that are given to the different members of the church or the different people in the church or the different members of the body is the metaphor that's used when Paul writes about not all members having the same gift, he says that the reason is 
so that there is mutual dependence. And so there's a sense in which the Levites are dependent on the other 11 tribes to get after it. If they're going to be receiving a tithe from the other 11 tribes, well, then they're actually going to get 110% of what they typically would. If you think of it that way, whatever the other 11 tribes are doing, the Levites get a 10th of that, the first 10th, actually, the best 10th. And so in some sense, they are dependent on the other 11 tribes, but in, I would argue, a deeper sense, the other 11 tribes are dependent on the Levites. And we'll see that as we go on through the Old Testament, we'll see that very often the priests are the leaders of Israel into sin and folly. When the priests go bad, so also the people go bad. If the priests are being faithful, well, then so also the people tend to be faithful. And so in some sense, this is mutual dependence like what we find in the New Testament. God has blessed each of these tribes in a particular way, and he's given them gifts. He also calls them to serve him in different ways, and that's all right. But I note here, I note as I'm reading through, a lot of reference to material goods. And that brings me to the conclusion that God cares about economics. It's not in character for God to say, only the internal world works. Only the mind and the heart works to please me. But there's no material evidence or there's no material effect. This is not a Greek notion. The Greeks, as they developed philosophy, came to separate out what was internal and what was spiritual from what was physical and what was corrupt. And the Gnostics in the early church were heretics because they had such a distinction, such a separation between what was physical and what was spiritual that they refused to believe that Jesus had come as a physical man in every ways as we are, physical beings. They refused to believe that because it conflicted with a pre-commitment to this Greek idea. But there's nothing of that in the Old Testament. God is very concerned with the heart. And so if the two don't match up, what is being said, right? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If what was said didn't match what God knew to be true in their hearts, God rejected that. If what was done in the offering, in the sacrificing to God, didn't match with obedience coming from a place of internal devotion to God, well, God rejected that. But what God was not doing in rejecting false praise or false worship or false offerings and sacrifices, what God was not doing was saying that none of those material effects matter. What he was saying is, as he says now, without love, it's nothing. And so love has to be, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what drives us forward There's a certain fear of God that's appropriate as well, but love for God and fear of God will go hand in hand. If we draw near to God out of love for him, which is appropriate, we should love him. 
we will also come to fear him because he is majestic. He is almighty. He is powerful. He is holy. He is righteous. As we draw near to him, we appreciate the holiness of God and our own fallen condition makes us all the more fearful of offending him. But also our love for God at the same time wants to please him. And so at the same time, all of this true at the same time, God cares about the internal world. He cares about what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our minds, what's going on in our affections, what's going on in our thinking and in our reasoning. He also cares as a consequence of all of that about what we are physically doing and how we are managing our material effects. All of this at the same time, not this instead of that, but very often this before that, or this material effect as a consequence of the internal reality. But it's interesting, if you think about it, the material effects can be pedagogical, or they can be instructive. They can serve as reminders, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament as well. There are regular feasts and other events, holy days, that are set up, remembrances which involve rituals to do with physical items. God prescribes that. Why? As a reminder. Why is the reminder important? Because your heart and your mind need to be on a regular basis engaged again so that you don't forget. Because you will forget if you're not intentional, if you're not going back again and again on a regular basis. As individuals, yes, also corporately as a people. But it's interesting just considering the Levites, just considering the duty of the priests to serve God and in some sense to serve the people of Israel, it's interesting to note here that God is looking after what is theirs and he is giving to them a portion. And that portion is not totally equal to what everybody else gets. In fact, in some sense, it's less. In a certain sense, it's less than what everyone else gets. And if you really do the math, it's more. As long as everybody is actually giving the first tenth of what they have and what opens the womb is being given to the Levites, if you do the math, they're getting 110%. So they actually have pride of place. They have the very best and they have the most. And this can be twisted. It can go awry if we carry that into a situation where you have greedy hearts and you have people who are wanting unjust gain or they are corrupt, it can go too far, absolutely. But at root, there is an inherently good thing when God commands, this is how I want things to be distributed. We see this also, I would add, in the parables that Jesus teaches. When he speaks in the parable of the talents of a master giving to different servants certain amounts of money, and that's what talents were. They were money. They weren't gifts and abilities that you're just really good at, uh, at you know, some stupid human trick. They were money. Talents were money. So the master gives three servants money to invest before going away. 
He's going to go on a trip. And while he's gone, he wants them to take this money and put it to work. He wants them to invest the money, start a business, buy a share of an existing business, buy livestock, build something and sell it, do something with the money, invest it, put it to work so that there's an increase, so that there's a profit, which is to say that the master, being analogous to God, has no problem with profit. In fact, he's going to come back and he's going to scold the wicked servant who buried talents, buried the money in a field, didn't put it to work, didn't put it to a profitable purpose. But another interesting thing in that parable is that God gives differing amounts of money to the three servants. He doesn't give the same amount to each of the servants. And actually, as a matter of fact, the one to whom he gives the least is the one who buries the talents in a field and doesn't put them to work, doesn't invest them. And when challenged on this point, when the master returns and finds that the first two servants have invested and turned a profit with what was given to them, what was entrusted to them of the master's money, the wicked servant who is rebuked by the master says, I knew you were a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow. Therefore, I buried the talents in a field. And so what you have there is, if you're paying attention, the wicked servant, the slothful servant, the prodigal in a sense, because there's opportunity cost here, it could have been making at least interest if you put it in the bank, you have that wicked servant not just failing to invest, but also impugning the goodness of God, the character of God, the fairness of God, and who knows? Reading between the lines, this is a little bit speculative, but who knows? Maybe the wicked servant is bitter that he wasn't given the same amount as the other two servants. That happens. Somebody doesn't have as much as somebody else, and so they just refuse to do anything with what they do have because somebody else has more, and they're upset about it. And that's a caution to us. We are warned against being like the wicked servant who buried his talents in a field. And Jesus says, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who sows generously will reap generously. He who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. He who is not faithful with even a little even what little has been given to him will be taken away and given to someone else. And so all of this comes together in this episode for us to talk about economics, not as something apart from God's word or the Christian life or righteousness, but as a field of study and human endeavor and effort that is very important to God. And we find that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find it in Numbers 18. We find it all over the place, as a matter of fact. God made the material world. He made us to be physical beings as well as spiritual beings. Not either or, both and. Christ was incarnate. That is, he took on flesh, spirit and flesh, material substance, physical matter. Not either or. Jesus worked miracles. He taught truth. He also healed those who were physically sick or broken. He also fed those who were literally hungry. He was giving them spiritual food 
but he was also giving them physical food because they have physical needs. And God made us physical, and he exercises and demonstrates his sovereignty over all of the above, all of creation, all that is spiritual and all that is physical. And he wants us to relate to all of the above accordingly. For our first story in this episode, I'm going to play for you a bit of audio from Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute. This will be a bit of audio concerning our education system and the curriculum and history, more specifically. Take a listen. Here's cut one. We need a substantial change. We need massive change. And I don't think it's going to come from central planning. I don't think some committee is going to get together and say, here's the new Common Core, the new No Child Left Behind. This has to be decentralized. We have to unleash the entrepreneurship and ingenuity of millions of people, which is why we need so-called school choice or education freedom. Rather than protecting this monopoly, this system that, that is just old and inefficient, let's unlock those funds as many states are with these ESA laws. Let's unlock those funds and empower parents to go find the best solutions and let's have a marketplace of competitive, amazing, you know, education services rather than just the one size fits all system that we have today. Like when you have, you know, ineffective teachers, dumbed down curriculum, uninspiring, whatever, it's like, yeah, you're going to uh, have kids who are just bored by it and not learning it or, or whatever. And then, you know, those those kids like those teachers are using the same thing and it's just getting worse and they're not caring. Many of the teachers are quitting. They're getting fed up. They're going to go start their own little micro school or move into another profession. It's just some of these issues just kind of build on themselves. And so I think that's why we're seeing the 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 trajectory that we are, that it's just a, a decline. Again, it's not a massive thing. It's just a slow trickle of of uh, of decline. But again, like in my mind, it's the, that definition of insanity. Those who uh, repeat the same thing over and over again, yet expect a different result are insane. And so, you know, collectively, we're just doing the same thing that we've done for years. And there's been no child left behind and there's been common core and there's been all these efforts to try and, you know, change things. But uh, often they just make it worse and they definitely don't significantly improve things at all. Um, and so we're, we're insane. We keep uh, expecting that we can just, you know, hack at the margins of education the way it's done in America and, and expect, you know, different results. We, but in a sense, it's a little bit of political whack-a-mole, right? These parents are, are focused on trying to hit that one mole down. Another one's just going to pop up and then another one and then another one. And meanwhile, again, the academic decline is just continuing. So we're so distracted and, and not not incorrectly, but we're focused on these like you know awful books that are in the, the classrooms but then we're not giving attention to the horrible social studies curriculum that has been used for 15 years and you know is leading to the low test scores and and high levels of historical ignorance that we have among our population so we, we need more sub uh, substantive reform and attention given to broader changes that are needed because if we're always kind of distracted or focused on these little superficial or or uh, you know, uh, temporary type of little political battles that happen, we're gonna be forever distracted from the core problem that, that's uh, needed to be resolved. Henry David Thoreau has this quote where he says, uh, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's only one striking at the root. So it's very easy for us to get distracted with all these little you know, uh, tangential things that, that are legitimate. They are concerning, you know, on, on their face. But I think for the benefit of our society, we need to figure out what is the root? What, how do we strike at the root that, that then has all the downstream effect to uh, positively benefit so many other people? And, and I think that is competition. 
if we unlock competition, if we unlock the dollars, um, then we're going to see a diversity of options, all kinds of creativity and, and different uh, options. That's going to allow us to flourish rather than be trapped in mediocrity. There, there's a lot of hope to be had for how we can improve from here. And, uh, and I'm optimistic that we'll figure it out. Okay. That was Connor Boyack. You may recognize the name as he is the author of the Tuttle Twins series of books. I ended up buying the full set for my family, for our kids, and my kids love them. They really do. Uh, I love them. I know that they're based on books that I have read. In many cases, I haven't read all the books that they're based on, but they're good books. They're well-written books. My kids have asked a lot of questions and talked amongst themselves after reading these books, passed them around. My daughter, Evelyn, who is nine, has very much enjoyed them. My son, Daniel, who just turned 12, has very much enjoyed them. My older sons have also read them. My son, Solomon, who's 13. My son, Eli, who is almost 15. My son, Josiah, who is almost 16. They're really good books. You should check them out. But that's Connor Boyack speaking to Fox News about our education system. And even that we think of education as being the domain of the government primarily and secondarily as something that some parents take on as their primary role. Typically, it's the mom who does the primary instruction among homeschoolers. That we think of it as being majority a government domain is a product of the same public education that we've had for 100 years. Now, there's been little community uh, involvement, public education after a fashion for a long time, since even before the founding of the United States, when these were 13 colonies. That's true. Education historians, American education historians will cite that. But we have a very different system now, as of the past century, than we did in the good old days. And I would say that they were good old days because our literacy rate was so much higher. And it's not just can people read, it's what are they reading and how are they reading and what are they doing with the information. In previous generations, prior to compulsory government schooling, as John Taylor Gatto would put it, the kinds of books that were typically read, the kinds of magazine articles that were both produced and consumed were qualitatively much better. They were made of much firmer material, much more robust content was produced and consumed prior to the last century. And we can blame, don't think, blame the likes of John Dewey and the progressives who wanted to socialize everyone. They wanted to enact a progressive and secular society by way of education. We can blame them for this gradual decline in the content of our character, in the content of our instruction, the formation of minds which are independent and capable of critical thinking and capable of creative problem solving. We have gotten dumber as a people. If you want to just put it very succinctly, we've gotten dumber and dumber, and we've gotten more and more base, more and more primal, less and less disciplined, less and less virtuous. And this is a real problem when it comes to being able to hold our own as a 
people, as a country. Just being able to make ends meet is a lot harder when you don't have a good education. Being able to vote is a lot harder. Being able to participate in your community is a lot harder when you're not getting a good civics education in the schools. When you're being taught increasingly in recent years to be an activist in the public schools, when you're taught that you can renounce your gender, you can renounce the God of your forefathers, you should actually, more to the point, when you come into the (laughs) classroom in a public school setting, when that's what has been taught with increasing boldness and audacity in the public schools, we have to take a step back and survey, all right, what else are people trying? And I'm a big proponent of homeschooling. I wrote the book, and this is why we homeschool, for a reason, because I want other people to be persuaded. It's not something that everyone is in a position to do. I recognize that, and I say that in my book. Not everybody is in an ideal spot to be able to homeschool their kids. But that said, that goes back very often to economics again. It goes back again and again to dual-income households where the mother and the father both have jobs outside the home. They both work full-time, and therefore, they have a certain amount of debt or they have a certain lifestyle that they're accustomed to that requires two incomes. If you combine that with the rate of inflation, with tax rates, and then you look at parents increasingly wanting to homeschool their kids but not feeling like they can financially afford it, I think we have to, as a people, also factor in economic concerns and see that this is something of a chicken and egg problem. Economically, more and more families are living close to the edge. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're getting themselves deep into debt. And what's driving that? I would say, to some extent, what's driving that is the public education system. And also, at the same time, that is driving parents to keep their kids in the public education system. And so it's this vicious cycle. It's a downward spiral into mediocrity, for one thing, where we tell the majority of students, if you want to get through, and that's all you need to do is just get through, don't make waves. Don't be exceptional either on the lower end of the spectrum or the upper end of the spectrum. But in some sense, what are we doing then? We are burying talents in a field. If certain kids are very gifted in something that's just not being tested for in the school system and it's not being cultivated in the school system, what happens to those talents and those giftings, those gifts from God himself, what's happening to them? Aren't they being buried in a field? If the school systems are looking for funding, because there again we find economics, they get a certain amount of money from the federal government, from the state government, per student. And then also, in many cases, they're getting funding based on how many kids are special needs or how the test scores are looking. What does their curriculum, what does their program revolve around before you know it? It revolves around teaching to tests, and we've seen that. And I've talked with a lot of public school teachers who say that's a major problem. That's a significant problem, teaching to the test so that the school district gets its funding so that the school teacher gets 
acclaim and recognition. But also, too, you have something of perhaps possibly a perverse incentive structure for kids being special needs or classified as special needs. They need special help. And I've run across that as well, where parents will say, well, you don't understand. My kid has special needs. And I say, every child has special needs. Let's look at the rise in the diagnoses of children, typically boys, almost exclusively boys, not only boys, but far and away disproportionately boys in American public schools diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or a rise in the diagnoses of autism. Now, I'm not saying there isn't anything going on there, but there's a lot of factors that can play into that. Some of them are genetic. Some of them are environmental. Some of them have to do with diet and exercise or the lack thereof. Some of those have to do with media consumption. Some of those have to do with the content of the instruction. Some of those have to do with the absence of character formation as a priority in the public schools. Some of those have to do with the breakdown of discipline because what is being made war on is an objective standard of right and wrong that ultimately derives from God's authority. Because liberation and socialization and the progressive view of the good life for human beings is trying to strip children of adherence to or a call to or a command to obey God. And so we have to understand, as Connor Boyack said very well, very, very well, I 100% agree with everything I just heard him say there in the Fox News segment, we have to conclude along with Connor Boyack that if we keep on doing what we've been doing, we're going to keep on getting the results we've been getting. And also, at the same time, As I've said, in the case of activists in Weld County, Colorado, and in the larger area and across the country who are focused on getting certain books removed from the library as if that's all that's wrong or as if that's the biggest problem, they're playing whack-a-mole. They're playing whack-a-mole and they're not getting at the root. The root of the evil here, and it is evil, what's being done on an industrial scale to children, the root of what's being done to these children is presuppositional and it actually has everything to do with, do we have the fear of God before our eyes? Are we raising up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord or not? Or are many of our kids, most of our kids being trained up in the way that they should not go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it except by a miracle. The answer to those questions is not mysterious, and it is knowable. And we have a century of radical experimentation by the progressives in the U.S. to show us what the fruits of these labors are. And at the same time, we have pockets of innovation. And I would say every homeschooling family is a little pocket of innovation. It's not to say that every homeschooling family is a success. Every homeschool student is a success. But what do you have? Do you have a greater incidence of quality education being delivered, being produced and also consumed in the homeschooling environment or in the private school environment. I would say, look at the stats, look at the scoreboard. 
And I don't say that to be mean to the kids who went to public school, who are going to public school, the families that are sending their kids to public school. But I say this because if I love my countrymen, if I love my neighbor as myself, I have to recognize that our economic conditions here are closely tied to the quality of education that our children are given and to the character that we as a people are forming. And if you can't control what the economic conditions are, can you do something about the quality of education that your child receives? And I would say if and where you can, that should be your first priority, to be faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to you specifically that you have jurisdiction over. Start there and loop in others who know something about it. Ask them for input. Ask them for advice. Get good counsel. Get wise and godly counsel. And then if you can't, if you can't homeschool and you can't afford your kids going to a private school, a charter school, a Christian school, if you can't afford that, then band together with these parents, not to ban certain particular books or just to get the gender theory proponents and the critical race theory proponents to quiet down in their promotion of Marxism in the schools, band together with parents to enact school choice initiatives, to put the money back in the hands of the taxpaying parents to be able to instruct their children as they believe is best. And someone will say, ah, but what about separation of church and state? And what about parents that are not doing such a great job? They're not doing so hot. What about parents that are negligent or abusive? And I say, work on those parents, but those parents exist within the public school environment as well. And those parents, we already have measures in place to deal with. You don't have to abolish all of those measures. If a child is being beaten and molested and abused and neglected, we already have laws in place. We already have mechanisms in place to affect change there. You don't have to upend all of that. Some of that is actually bad and toxic and part of this larger progressive scheme. Like for instance, when California passes legislation or the state of Washington passes legislation saying a parent obstructing their child transitioning to a different gender is guilty of child abuse and therefore their children can be taken away from you. Those kinds of laws, those are actually far more toxic, I would argue, than even the occasional instance of abuse by a parent, real legitimate abuse, because what are you doing there? You're creating a chilling effect where even parents who are doing a good job are going to be classified as abusing their children. And when you have limited resources for CPS or whatever, what are they focused on? They're focused on going after the Christian parents who are opposed to their child being transitioned. And they're not focused on actual abuse. And this is where, again, we've got to be thinking more holistically about the welfare of the city, recognizing that when Paul writes in Romans 13, that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. We have right now a government, a bureaucracy at every level of our government in the U.S. increasingly punishing those who do what is good, rewarding those who do what is evil. And that 
also is a product of the public education system. If we want to affect change on the macro, we're going to have to start with our individual circumstances, investing what we have wisely so as to get a profit. It's fine to talk about it. It's fine to show up to a school board meeting and to try and be heard. But when they're not listening to you, if you aren't willing to pull your kids out and go a different way, if you're not willing to move to a different state, if that's what it takes, well, then they win. They win and you're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath and you are playing whack-a-mole. And if you're not dealing with what's at the root here, the evil that's at the root here and promoting competition and innovation as a way of fixing what ails education in America, then I'm sorry, you're fighting a losing battle. And I don't mean in the long run. I mean, right now you've lost already from the outset, but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be a losing battle. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why I would encourage you check out my book, check out the Tuttle Twins books. They're really, really good. If you're in the area, if you're in the Greeley, Colorado area, and you want to take a look at ours, stop in, give us a call first, but stop in or ask us about it. I'll be happy to show you what we've got. In other news, Tucker on Twitter had an interesting segue or segment or soundbite or portion of monologue, if you will, which the post-millennial tweeted out a clip of and which Not To Be Staff shared to their website on June 8th. Thank you again to Not To Be for embedding the tweet in your post at Not To Be so that I can see it because I'm still not on Twitter because I had the temerity. I had the goal. I had the audacity. I was so foolish and wicked as to clap back at a failed Democrat candidate for Congress, Chris Hale, Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee, when he called for the resignation or removal and replacement of Marsha Blackburn, Senator from Tennessee. Thank you to not to be for embedding this tweet in your post so that I could read it, so that I could comment on it. (laughs) Nevertheless, here's cut to, I'm going to play it for you. This is Tucker Carlson talking about a certain former president of the United States and some, uh, shall we say, odd features of his story. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. By 2008, it was obvious to anybody who was paying attention that Barack Obama had a strange and highly creepy personal life, yet nobody ever asked him about it. By that point, a leader's behavior within his own marriage, the core relationship of his life, have been declared irrelevant. It was Barack Obama's business, not yours. Okay. (laughs) Uh, May I just note that the final line of this not-to-be post from not to be staff, which for good reasons, for reasons that are obvious, uh, they're not putting somebody's personal name out in the public and attaching it to this. I note that they do that quite a lot at not to be. Most of the authors, if not all of them, are writing under pseudonyms like Harambe and Daniel Plainview. Daniel Plainview is a main character from the movie There Will Be Blood played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He's this oil tycoon. Daniel Plainview, I'm pretty sure, is not really writing for Not To Be. Not To Be staff is definitely 
a cue, a signal that they don't exactly want to put somebody's personal name out there so that they can be tracked down and doxxed and threatened, etc. But the final line of this not to be share of the Tucker on Twitter audio is the question, did he just say what I think he just said? And then the line before that is Tucker has been on the inside for a long time now. He knows things. Now, it's being suggested, it's not even being directly stated in the not the B post for, again, obvious reasons, that there is something untoward, something inappropriate in former President Barack Obama's personal life going way back, and that this was clear in 2008. This was clear 15 years ago. If you were listening closely, and if you'll remember in the Connor Boyack audio that I played for you, he says, we've had a very, very bad social studies curriculum for, let's say, 15 years. And we've had problems in American education in the public schools for much longer than that, for 100 years. It's at the root. Go back and research John Dewey and the social Darwinists and the very, very wealthy industrialists who poured so much money into essentially the educational arm of a broader eugenics movement. But 15 years ago to the present, Connor Boyack points out we've had some major problems in our social studies programs, in our history curriculum in the U.S., in the American public schools. Also, 15 years ago, Tucker Carlson independently is observing It was obvious, and I quote, it was obvious to anybody who was paying attention that Barack Obama had a strange and highly creepy personal life. Now, there's a number of things here that are swirling, they're they're swirling around in your mind and my mind, which may or may not prove to be true in the long run. But let me just, let, let me just go back in history a ways to give us some perspective. And let's go back to Merry old England. And let's talk a little bit about King James, the same King James who commissioned and put his name on a translation of the Bible into English, the King James uh, Version, KJV. That KJV, that King James Version of the Bible, that King James had a nickname at court, and his nickname was Queen James. Now, why was his nickname Queen James? It's very simple. Because he was widely believed to be a bisexual and to have homosexual relationships with men he was close to in his royal court. And oh, by the way, I was just explaining and unpacking this for a friend of mine over breakfast yesterday. Oh, by the way, it was King James And Charles, or a couple of each, around that time, the same family line that held to the divine right of kings, in part because they went down the wrong road with the line of reasoning that Henry VIII broke from Rome, broke from the Roman Catholic Church under, they went down the wrong road into supposing that the king is the law because God makes the king. And therefore, the king can do whatever he wants. He can declare unilaterally 
what is good and what is evil, and he can do whatever he wants. He is the law, and you can't question him. You can't challenge him. That extended into, reportedly, allegedly, widely believed by historians and biographers of King James, and actually confirmed, at least potentially, with some of what's been found in a secret passageway between King James's uh, bedchamber and the bedchamber of one of his men at court, one of his favorites, on whom he lavished uh, inappropriate, unseemly, unmanly attention, even publicly. King James is widely believed to have been a bisexual, in the closet, of course, but nevertheless, when people widely believe that, and there's evidence to support it, then it's at least within the realm of possibility that he was, in fact, a bisexual. Now, let's come back to the Tucker Carlson piece. And let's just consider for a moment whether it would be out of character for Barack Obama to have been not just engaging in extramarital affairs. That is old hat, thanks to or blame to Bill Clinton, especially JFK, unfortunately, as well. But Bill Clinton, very publicly, was a womanizer. And you might even say a predator. And once that became public knowledge and he lied about it, and then it was discovered that, yes, in fact, he lied. And then nothing happened really, except a whole lot of chaos and confusion. We normalized sexual immorality in the office of the president. We saw nothing catastrophic happen, or so we thought. And we just figured, oh, well, okay, I guess that's okay now. And then the next thing was Barack Obama. I mean, of course, there was George W. Bush in between and the war on terror. And we won't get into that in this episode. But then the next Democrat we got in the White House came in claiming that he believed in traditional marriage. And then once he was actually in office, he acted very differently. And he started singing a very different tune. And he started promoting homosexuality and the normalization of homosexuality. And he started using the office of the president, his position as the chief executive of these United States to promote marriage equality, so-called, or as you may know it, gay marriage. And he started promoting gay pride. And that's where we got all of the baggage publicly about you need to affirm And not just tolerate, but you need to regard as equally legitimate, equally moral homosexuals and heterosexuals. And what was the objection from the left when conservatives and Christians in particular said, absolutely not. That will be the downfall of our country, our people. What was the response? Well, Christians have already desecrated the institution of marriage with serial monogamy, with infidelity, with divorce rates that are supposedly, that was the claim, supposedly on par with those who are not Christians. So the Christians are in no position to talk. And also, oh, by the way, you can't impose your morality on other people. Just be glad that we tolerate you, Christians. And eight years of Barack Obama promoting homosexuality, not just here in the US, but around the world, you can read Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cassar Sunstein both of whom worked in the 
Obama administration or in league with the Obama initiatives, you can read them. And they, for one, in their first edition, were advocating for the normalization of gay marriage around the world. And they outlined how they thought it should be done. And then they went to work for the Obama administration. And I think they were partly recruited because it was the intention of the Obama administration. It was the intention of Obama himself and the people funding Obama, the radical left progressive activists behind the scenes here in the U.S. and around the world. It was their intention from the beginning to nudge, 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 nudge the American people and the American government into affirming and then ultimately celebrating and ultimately preferring homosexuals in the interest of social justice. And so they talk in their updated, revised edition, Nudge, the final edition, published 2021. They talk about what the Obama administration was able to accomplish and what the left, what the homosexual lobby was able to accomplish just by getting an openly gay bar association to be able to try and argue cases before the Supreme Court and how that nudged the Supreme Court with each case, with each interaction, with each conversation with these openly homosexual lawyers. It nudged the Supreme Court justices to the point where when Obergefell v. Hodges was to be tried, they were sympathetic and they were inclined to give the gay lobby, give the homosexual lobby what it wanted, which was recognition. And it started out as recognition. It started out as, we just want to be treated equal. We just want to be treated with as much acceptance as same-sex friendships, because love is love. And that's what we're going to say this is. It's just love. We want to be treated with the same acceptance that heterosexual couples, monogamous, lifelong, traditional marriage couples are treated with. That's all we're asking. All we want is legal benefits, and that's all we're asking for. And it wasn't, actually, because they were given what they wanted, and they should never have been. They were given what they wanted, and then the next thing they wanted was pride parades. And now the thing that they want is all-ages drag shows and gender mutilation for young children and hormone therapy and puberty blockers for little children. And they have the public schools. They have the public education system. They are increasingly making headway in state legislatures, passing laws that will take children away from conservative Christian couples and give them to the state. And then presumably the state could turn around and give those children to same-sex couples to be raised by homosexuals. And so what Tucker Carlson is getting at here in just even alluding to a strange and highly creepy personal life for Barack Obama is multifaceted. On the one hand, he's alluding to rumors that Obama was very active in the homosexual community in Chicago and that he was a homosexual. He was a bisexual. And there's also a really dirty rumor, and I don't know if there's any truth to it, but there's a really dirty rumor that Michelle Obama was originally a man, and then she transitioned and actually is biologically a man who has gone through all of the surgery and treatments and all the rest, and 
Barack and Michelle's children are adopted. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't. I hate to even mention it, but it's out there. It's in the mix. And these days anymore, would we be surprised? Would we be shocked? What we know publicly is enough to condemn these people or in the meantime, to call them to repentance. But without some kind of institutional power, we know that to do that, to speak openly about these things, risks the full weight and power of the bureaucratic state being dropped on us. When the DOJ prefers to go after parents who are vocal at school board meetings about their children being indoctrinated in critical race theory and gender theory, instead of going after networks of pedophiles that use Instagram to sell child pornography or access to children who have been trafficked, when our DOJ is going after pro-life demonstrators and activists who peacefully, actually peacefully protest, instead of going after pro-abortion, violent extremists, we know enough. But there's another aspect to what Tucker Carlson is getting at here, which I think is important to recognize. And that is, you weren't supposed to talk about Barack Obama's personal life if you were in the media in 2008. That's important. That's really important. And his having been in media, his having been at Fox News for so many years and being their top talent until they let him go because he was making too much trouble. There were talks of boycotts. It's all about the money. At the end of the day, you can't have people boycotting Fox News and not advertising there anymore or else Fox News won't be a thing anymore. You better shut him up. Now they're suing or threatening to sue or accusing Tucker Carlson of breach of contract because he's got a new show, not on Fox News. They want to muzzle him. That's why they removed him. It's not just that they don't want him on their channel. They don't want him on any channel. They, they don't want him producing content anywhere. That's why they took away his show. So he goes somewhere else and he has a new show. And it's wildly popular. 60 million views on his first video in the first, I think it was 24 hours. That's an insane amount of interest in watching Tucker Carlson on Twitter particularly if now he's free to say things that before were always going to get him fired. And then he finally did say something that was going to get him fired, or he said a series of things that got him fired. Not technically, but let's be real. He, he was fired from Fox News. They took away his show. That's Whether they keep paying him a salary, that's for all intents and purposes, firing him, terminating his employment there. They might still pay him, but it's like a hush money payment, actually on behalf of the corporations and the politicians who didn't want Tucker saying these things anymore. And this is also something to consider alongside the problem with our education system. What is the destiny? What is the destination for America's future generations if the public education system is teaching them what it is and not teaching them what it isn't. And if the media is telling us as adults what it is and not telling us what it isn't, if the education system and the media are alike trying to brainwash the young and the old 
and actually keep us from knowing things which would cause us to vote against their interests as they see them or their agenda as they see it. Again, I say you should be asking, what is it that you actually have control over? What is your jurisdiction as a parent? Your jurisdiction is probably not to make decisions for the whole school district. You might be able to make your case, implore them, plead with them, present an argument, and they can ignore you. And the DOJ can put you on a list. But last I checked, you still have the freedom to homeschool your kids, pull your kids out, do what it takes to secure future generations of your household so that they have freedom, so that they have economic opportunity, so that they have real, true, lasting, actual liberty. What the left is selling is not actually liberty. Any more than the Fievel Goes West mousetrap was what it was advertised to be. It's a trap, ladies and gentlemen. It's a trap. We don't have to keep walking into that trap. And this is why we homeschool. Next up, I'd like to talk briefly about a few articles, a few links that I mentioned in passing in our last episode where I reviewed the 5am club, which not to give anything away, if you haven't listened already, I didn't like. I didn't like that book by Robin Sharma at all. But one of the stories that I touched on briefly in talking about the question of tithing and offerings and how we give generously as Christians to the operation of the church, how we steward what God has entrusted to us materially, financially. One of the stories I touched on briefly is this piece in the Denver Post by Lauren Pennington, published June 7th, Colorado distributing $4 million in emergency funding to 245 food pantries as community need increases. So the subtitle here is Demand for community resources and food pantries rising across the state with reduction of SNAP benefits. Now, SNAP, you might be wondering, SNAP is not where you go and work and earn a paycheck and bring that paycheck home and put it in the bank and then you know, jump online, order groceries, snap your fingers, and hit checkout. <laughs> You know, that that's not what SNAP is, right? Regardless what you're calling various programs, I think we should all agree that it would be better. It would be better for programs not to be how we are feeding our families. If you're in a situation where you're not making enough money and you have to go to a food pantry, you have to accept donations or charity, somebody has to help you to feed your family, but you're working hard and you're doing your best. You're doing the best you can and it's just not enough. I have compassion for you. I've been in your shoes before. It's hard. And the macro economic conditions are not under your control. They're not under my control, but it's not ideal. It's not ideal. And I think we know that. I think we all need to recognize that these programs are supposed to be a means to an end. That's how they've been sold. That's how they that's how they've been billed, but there are better means to these ends that actually lead to more holistically, more robustly better outcomes. Now you might say, now here's where I, I have to anticipate some challenges. 
the passage I read for you in Numbers 18, you've got the Levitical priests being given a tenth, the first tenth, the best tenth of the output economically of the other 11 tribes. And so you would say potentially, ah, but sometimes it's okay. It's in the Bible that sometimes people don't work in a traditional way and they just receive what it is that they need. And I say, okay, sure. Also, I'll do you one better. Also, look in Genesis at the famine in the land, in the Fertile Crescent, in the Mesopotamian region, the broader Middle East, the famine in the days of Jacob and his 12 sons. It was a severe famine that followed close on the heels of seven years of abundance, abundant harvests, rich output. And briefly, let's recall that Joseph interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, was let out of prison, was put second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and was charged with preparing the granaries, preparing the food stores through those seven years of plenty for seven years of famine. And let's remember that during those seven years of famine, the food in the surrounding nations ran out. And so you have people coming to Egypt to buy food because there's no food where they come from. And then you have the people of Egypt running out of food. And so they start to sell everything that they have. They sell their livestock, they sell their land, they sell themselves to Pharaoh. And the only exception actually in Egypt was that the priests still maintained their independence and they still had their property. But otherwise, the whole land of Egypt became enslaved to Pharaoh. And I want you to think with me for a moment about whether we want a similar outcome here, whether some want a similar outcome here, and whether what's been billed as the Great Reset, which whatever you think about it, it's a real thing. You can go look it up. This is a real initiative. What's been billed, what's been advertised, what's been promoted is you will own nothing and you will be happy. What that actually means is that you will be a slave. That's the condition that the people of Egypt were in. That's the condition that the people of Israel were in. And it may not be immediately. It may not be overnight, but it will happen given human nature that when, if this goes off, if this is allowed to happen, when everybody owns nothing and is happy, the people who are in charge of distributing actually effectively own the people that they're distributing to. Because what is it when you run out of food and you go to the person who's in charge of food distribution and you say, please, mom, may I have some more like Oliver Twist? What happens if they want you to do something or they want you to not do something? They want you to say something or they want you to not say something that helps to keep this whole thing going, helps to keep this whole thing working after a fashion. All they have to do is make the giving of food to you and your progeny conditional on compliance. And then you really are a slave. And this is what Marx was getting at. Marx and Engels, when they wrote in the Communist Manifesto about seizing the means of production, at the end of the day, we've seen this play out 
And the means of production ultimately is not factories, it's not fields. The means of production are you and I. And more to the point, more chillingly, they write openly about surplus population. They, they talk about surplus production, but they also talk about surplus population. And what do we know happens to those who are regarded as surplus population in China, in Russia? You figure out who is critical of the regime, who is not helping to keep this thing afloat, who's trying to work contrary, who's trying to keep something for themselves, who's trying to act independently of the collective or the needs of the many as they are stated, articulated by the so-called experts, by the party bosses, by the Soviets. What happens to them? They are classified as surplus population. It just doesn't need to eat anymore. And they need to work harder because they need to undo the damage that they've done by being critical of the people's representatives and the system. They just don't need to eat anymore. They need to work harder. In fact, what happened is by the millions, by the tens of millions, surplus population in the Marxist experiment in Russia and in China, surplus population was disposed of. And so it's nudge, 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 lie after lie after lie after lie. And the programs are offered, the programs are offered up as the means to the end that nobody disputes. Nobody disputes whether people being able to eat is a good end. I would hope, I would hope until the food runs out. And then let's remember what happened in Nazi Germany. The final solution to the Jewish problem, taking form in gassing the Jews and burying them or incinerating them. The final solution to the Jewish problem, as it was called by the Nazis, by the eugenicists in Germany, was to classify the Jews as surplus population. And so they're in these work camps, they're in these concentration camps to segregate them from society. They've been removed from positions of authority, whether in universities or in churches or in political organizations, in the government. They've been removed from their ownership of businesses, ownership of their homes. And then we've got to put them somewhere. So they and their families were loaded onto rail cars and taken to concentration camps where they were housed in ugly conditions and surveilled constantly and abused and experimented on and tortured and murdered and then starved and gassed and incinerated and buried by the millions. That is possible. All of that is possible given the ingredients that are being added to our social imaginary in the United States of America right now before our very eyes. This is why it's deadly serious how your kids are being educated. It's deadly serious how your church handles business. It's deadly serious what kind of dynamics we're forming in our circles of friends and families, in our businesses. It's deadly serious, but it's also at the same time highly effective. Otherwise, the communists wouldn't feel so threatened by Christians. It's highly effective when you make an effort to know the truth. And here I mean the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're set free by the sun and you're free indeed, nothing scares them more. Nothing agitates them more. And so in a certain sense, we can think, oh man, they're the ones who are scary. No, no, they're scared. 
That's why they're putting on this big show. That's why they're trying to put on so much propaganda and they're trying to silence all dissent is because the dissent is fatal if it's allowed to get out, if it's allowed to cross-examine and question the first to state his case, who happens to be a Marxist, they know they can't win. And they know that actually, since their deeds are dark, if they're exposed, woe to them. And on one hand, we can say it's going that direction. Nothing can be done about it. But on the other hand, we have a purpose for being here right now in this context. And it's not to bury talents in a field, ladies and gentlemen. It is not to be silent in the face of evil. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. As the Old Testament law from God to Moses gives us the definition and the profile of justice, to be silent when there is a public call for someone to testify who's a witness to a crime or an alleged crime. It is a sin to not testify. It is a sin. God says it's a sin. And what would we say? Would we say, oh, well, that's Old Testament, so it doesn't apply anymore? I would argue no. I would argue just like murder is still a mortal sin, just like we are told in the New Testament, here's a list of evil deeds that are prohibited in the Old Testament. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Just like Paul clearly has categories of good and evil in mind with specific actions and works and deeds that belong in them when he writes Romans 13, that the governing authority is there to do good to those who do good, to punish those who do evil as a minister of God. Well, so also, we can't be silent. We can't be passive. Now, we do want to be wise as serpents, because we're dealing with serpents here, but we have to deal with them in some form or fashion. Call them to repentance, absolutely, unless they are swine and dogs. And in that case, Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not give to dogs what is holy. You have to make a judgment there. You have to make a judgment as to the character of a person if they are a swine, if they are a dog, and move on. In fact, Jesus commands his disciples, if you go to a certain town or village and they won't listen to you, you come preaching the kingdom of God, you come telling them about Messiah to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If they won't listen to you, shake even the dust off your sandals and move on. So there's that. But again, all of this can be hyper-spiritualized to the exclusion of the economic reality. And if we do that, we're making a mistake and we are on, I would say, a dangerous trajectory. We don't want to suppose that what is immaterial is what is actually counted by God. And that's all he really cares about. What is material doesn't really matter. No, no, that's a Gnostic idea. We do that and we're going down the path of heretics. We're following in their footsteps. There's no new thing under the sun. It's been tried. It's false teaching. It's a false gospel. But then what do we do? Well, one thing we might do is we might look at something along the lines of average rent by year at ipropertymanagement.com. They have a research section, data and research section. And their average rent by year article 
last updated November 6th of last year, 2022, gives us some very helpful graphs and also some important statistics to bear in mind. Some highlights. Average rent prices have increased 8.85% per year since 1980, consistently outpacing wage inflation by a significant margin. 2021 was an exceptionally volatile year for the market, which appears to continue in 2022. According to some measurements, the national average rent increased over 18% year over year from the first quarter of 2021 to the first quarter of 2022. The nationwide average monthly rent in August 2022 was $1,388. The median rent in July 2022 was $1,879 for the 50 largest metropolitan areas in the U.S. 77.9% of renters pay rent in full and on time. 45% is the average rent-to-income ratio. Now, just get this for a moment, right? In case I said that too fast, I don't want to move on so quickly that we miss this. 45% is the average rent to income ratio. 45%. That is to say, the average renter, the average renter is paying half of their income just to rent where they live. That is important to God. I would say we as Christians need to care more about this. More broadly, you know, I just received a notice from our property management company here in Greeley for the house that we're renting and have been renting since 2019. I just received notice that our rent is going up again. It was $1,975. It's a 2,600 square foot house. It's not in the best of shape. It's not in the best of condition. There's a lot of things that are worn out. We've put in ticket after ticket after ticket for things to be repaired or replaced. We've got no response on most of them. And the ones that we have gotten responses on have typically only been the emergency items. But our rent is going up $125 a month to $2,100. The email that I received from the property management company stated that the owner would like to recoup some of his losses or some of his, as she put it, investment. And what is that about? That is about our having, my having said, our flooring is breaking. The tile was poorly installed from the beginning. According to several of the companies that came in to do an estimate, the tile was breaking and cracking And in some cases, whole chunks had come out and we couldn't put them back in. And so they were just toe catchers. And our kids were walking through and tripping on these holes in the tile floor and cutting their feet and falling and hurting themselves. And it took months of me following up and persisting and being the squeaky wheel before I finally threatened very kindly, very gently to perhaps pursue legal recourse. Do I need to make a complaint? I think this is against Colorado's laws 
regarding the responsibility of the landlord. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, absolutely. We're going to have some people out there right away. And yeah, don't worry about it. You know, we're working on it. We'll have this replaced ASAP. But what do we get in response the next time our lease is up? We're raising the rent. And the big question is, how high is too high? And the answer is supply and demand. And that was another thing the property management company told me in the email, letting us know, hey, we'd like to come through and do another inspection of the property and then have you sign a new updated lease agreement with the higher rent costs. When can we schedule that for? And did anybody ever come and fix the sprinkler system? And the answer is no, but it's been raining so much we didn't need it. And the AC unit is undersized for the house. And according to the service technicians that they have sent out, the property management company has sent out, the HVAC unit is several years past when you typically are supposed to replace HVAC, AC units. And they've been saying that for two years now when they come out to do the service. And they let the property management company know and nothing happens. But here's the thing. The property management company tells me this is what we're going to do. And when can we come through and do another inspection of the house? And you guys have been great tenants, but... If I were to rent this house out to someone else right now, which is a veiled threat, of course, mind you, and a reminder, you don't own this place, I could get $2,300 a month for it. So then all of a sudden we're talking about just be glad, if I can read between the lines here, which I can, be glad that it's going to $2,100 instead of $2,300 a month because that's what the market would support right now. That's what a comparable house for rent in the area is going for right now. Be glad that it's not a 15% increase this year. It's only a 7.5% increase in your rent. And I bring this up because this is terribly relevant to how Christians engage or don't politically. There are at least three categories of Christians in America right now with regards to political engagement. On the one hand, You have the conservative types who vote Republican, and if you're a Christian, you vote Republican, and abortion and LGBTQ issues are at the forefront, and the rest of it is, eh, whatever, but very clear. You don't murder babies, and homosexuality is a sin, and stop putting the sexual perversion in my face and in my kid's face. How do I vote to make that better? On the other end of the spectrum, you have folks who are radical left, progressive community organizer types who've hijacked the gospel to insist that what Jesus would really do is vote for the pro-choice, transgender-affirming, gay, lesbian, bisexual ally, welfare state candidate. That's what Jesus would really do. And if you don't know that, if you don't believe that, if you don't act like that, if you don't talk like that, if you don't think like that, you you might not even be a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, you might not even be a Christian. Woe to you. Repent. And then in the middle, in between those two extremes, you have a whole lot of Christians, a lot of churchgoers who have no interest in any of it. It's all a lot of drama, and they would like to spiritualize the Christian walk and make it into a self-help guide. Very personalized, very, what does this mean to me? I just want to have 
a happy marriage and a good social life. And I want my kids to learn some basic manners. And if the Jesus stuff will help my kids to obey my wife and I, then I have a better life. But what matters most to me is social acceptance. And in many cases, those Christians in the middle, those churchgoers in the middle at least, grew up in the public education system. And so their idea of what is a good testimony is very closely aligned with the public school model for socialization. Don't make waves. Don't rock the boat. Don't upset anybody. Don't challenge anybody. Keep your head down. Do what everybody else is doing. Just try and stay in the middle. That's what Jesus would do. And might I just suggest that the folks who are only voting according to the abortion issue or gay rights or transgenderism too often overlook the importance of, the moral imperative of God's attention to provision and economics. Can I suggest to you that in too many cases, the moderate folks in the middle are given too much slack? Can I suggest to you that the folks on the left are preaching a false gospel, whether they know it or not, or they're believing a false gospel? And there might be hope for them, but they need to be they need to be called to repentance. They just do. Read Machen. He was not mysterious about this. And it is not hard to understand, actually, if you're really trying. If you don't care to understand, if you're too busy socializing, well, then you're not going to understand it. And yes, it's hard to understand. In fact, it's impossible to understand if you don't want to, if you refuse to do anything about it. But it's actually very much a matter of godliness and righteousness whether we are attending to our brothers and our sisters, if they have inadequate shelter, food, and clothing. And might I just suggest to you that some of what the radical left says is correct biblically, and those who are conservatives throw out babies with bathwater when they throw all of what the left is pointing to in, in, in Bible, in scripture, when they throw all of that out, because they say, oh, well, that's social gospel stuff. We don't get into that. That's a mistake. That's foolish. That's naive. That's too simple. There's too much in scripture about economics, about our material wealth, about our households, about enjoying the fruits of our labors, about the relationship between work and profit and wisdom and godliness and our responsibility and our duty, not just to God in the abstract, but to one another, to our families. There's too much in there to just wave it off and let the left be the only one to state their case. The first to state their case and the only to state their case. And there is no second to come and examine them. In the New Testament, we're told, if you see a brother hungry, feed him. If you see a brother thirsty, give him something to drink. If you see him naked, clothe him. If you see him homeless, get him some shelter. But if our government, hijacked by the progressives, hijacked by the leftists, if our government has actually extracted so much wealth and regulated the supply and demand dynamics to the point that between their printing of money and their tamping down of competition or the production of more supply, if they have created the conditions that are conducive to our slavery and to our poverty, at a certain point, the whole counsel of God needs to be brought to bear on these things, on behalf of our brother. Thessalonians concludes from Paul 
aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, working with your hands as we taught you, so that you may be dependent on no one, walking properly before outsiders. That is conservatism in a nutshell. It doesn't mean you can always keep quiet though, because what about when your affairs are being thwarted? What about when you're being robbed or suppressed or oppressed? Do you say nothing? What about when your brother is being oppressed? You know, I'm looking at this historical median monthly rents graph and I'm seeing back in 1940, $27, $27 by 1970, that had gone up to 108. 1985, the year before I was born, $339. 2000, 694. 2015, 958. Here's a fun fact for you. When my wife and I rented our house out on the table, out on the plateau, north of Glendive, when I moved my family back to Montana in 2012, when we rented that little two-bedroom house and moved our family into it, and I got my entry into the oil and gas industry, we paid $850 a month for rent. $850 for priceless, beautiful, peace and quiet space, country living, newly painted walls, new floors, $850 a month. When we bought our house, in Sydney, Montana, our mortgage payment monthly was $1,300. And I thought to myself, well, that's a lot more, but we can swing it. My salary supports that. It's fine. It's cool. And we own, right? We own our own house. When we moved from Montana to Colorado in 2019, we went from paying $1,300 a month for our mortgage to paying $1,900 a month to rent someone else's house. And I'm thinking to myself, if they've owned this house for quite some time, I know that they're making six, $7,000 a year. And if it was already behind on the maintenance thing when we moved in, and now three and a half years, we've maintained the place, we've fixed it up, we've kept it up, we've taken good care of it as much as we can without pouring a whole bunch of our own money into it, which we don't have. I'm thinking to myself, if their mortgage on this place, if they still have a mortgage, if their mortgage is mm, 1000 bucks, 1200 bucks a month, they're easily making almost 10 grand a year in profit off of us for going on 4 years, $40,000. You mean to tell me they can't afford to replace the AC unit that's over 20 years old? Do you mean to tell me they can't afford to replace the gas fireplace? that hasn't worked, that stopped working very shortly after we moved in, and it was part of the charm of the place, and that would, you would think, be part of what goes into the rent, how it's calculated, whether all the such things as that function, the house needs painted. You mean to tell me they don't have money? Making $40,000 over and above what the mortgage is, if they have a mortgage, you mean to tell me they don't have the money to have the house painted, the outside of the house painted? Really? You mean to tell me they don't have enough money to have the fence replaced with all that profit that they've already garnered? But here's the thing. None of that matters, right? That's a conversation that it, there's no point in having with the property management company or the owner. And I'll tell you why. There's no point in having that conversation 
So long as at the end of the day, all they have to point to is that other comparable houses in comparable condition in this area are renting out for $2,300 a month. That's all they need to know. That's all they care about. And unless something is done about the supply and demand dynamics to where tenants like myself can take our family and our household somewhere else to pay less or to get more for the same amount, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to listen. It's just a waste of time. It's just a recipe for aggravation. So long as the sale price of homes is so much and the interest rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is so high and our credit is now destroyed because the cost of living has gone up and up and up faster than the rate of increase to income, all they need to know is market conditions. And they can say, you're a good tenant. You guys have been great and still raise the rent. What needs to happen is Christian's regard these things as our business. It's a New Testament rebuke for those who would say to their brother who is hungry and naked, be warmed and fed, or I'll pray for you. It's a New Testament rebuke. And it shouldn't require that we're all impoverished. We're all underwater financially. We're all wearing shabby clothes and not getting three square meals a day. It shouldn't require that before the church says, hey, this is a big deal. This is a basic question of faithfulness to God. Meanwhile, if those who are hostile to the things of God are those who are rewarded, even as they prey on the church and Christians and those who are vulnerable, the widows and the orphans, if they are rewarded and they just keep getting more and more and more power, the oppression will increase. And this is what we see in Genesis as well. We see the trajectory. We see the arc of these kinds of dynamics playing out in Egypt, where at a certain point in the 400-year stay of the Israelites in Egypt, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't have any idea who Joseph was. And there arose a murmuring among the Egyptians that these Israelites, these Jews, these Hebrews, are too numerous. They're having kids a lot faster. They're having a lot more kids, a lot faster than we have any notion to. And we're not content to just let us handle these choices differently. We need to do something about this. And if you're in a vulnerable spot, it's going to take an act of God as a people to deliver you from the kinds of machinations that Pharaoh put into effect where he starts bringing in healthcare providers. (laughs) He brings in the midwives. When a baby boy is born, kill it. Don't let it live. And if the healthcare providers were, and they were, non-compliant, because that was an unjust law, that was a wicked decree, Pharaoh's next trick was to tell the people of Egypt, if you find a baby boy born to the Hebrews, kill it. And we can absolutely go down that road. If we're not already, get this in the same iProperty Management page that I have been talking with you about. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, defines fair market value, FMR. The FMR is not the price the average renter pays, however. The projected FMR for 2023 is 1180. So 1180 
is fairly high, I would say. I, I would say that should be a mortgage payment. As of mid-year 2022, monthly rent averaged $1,388 nationwide. Median rent is $1,083. As of July 2022, the 50 largest metro areas have a median rent of $1,879. From 2010 to 2020, 2011 had the largest year-over-year rate of rental inflation at 643.5%. In the 21st century, the median rent increased at an annual rate of 3.15% throughout 2020. The average rent increased despite massive job losses early on in the pandemic and a continued high unemployment rate. Currency values increase at an annual rate of 2.5%. The rent inflation averages 3.2%, which is to say if your wages are not increasing even to keep up with inflation and then inflation is not even keeping up with rent increases year over year, then 45% on average rent to income ratio is going to get worse. It's going to get higher and higher until we either have fewer people, which is a bad idea. Let's not do that. Or we have a greater supply of houses. And if you have a greater supply of houses, what you will also see is that the price of houses goes down. Supply and demand. If you have an increase in the supply of houses relative to the people who want houses, what you will find is the prices come down. And if the price to buy a home comes down and more people can buy instead of renting, what will you see with rental costs? as well. You'll see those rental costs come down because the supply of houses relative to the people who want to rent them will even out. What we're actually seeing in these statistics is less and less and less and less independence. Less households, less individuals being able to mind their own affairs, working quietly, living a quiet life, minding their own affairs, working with their hands as they were taught. Were they taught? I guess it's a question, but as we should be teaching people to work with their hands, yes, use your mind. It's not an either or, but enjoying the fruits of their labors. What we're seeing in these stats is increasing year over year dependence. And these are macroeconomic conditions. And you can tell an individual, well, you just need to work harder. You need to trust the Lord more. Is that all it is? It's just that the poor people are not working hard enough, or the people who rent are not trying hard enough? Is that all it is? Or is some of this set actually from state houses and from the U.S. Congress and from the White House? Is some of this actually public policy and regulation and tax rate and spending habits for our government? I would argue it's first and foremost policy that's driving this. Even when you come to where people are having their character formed, where they're developing their skills, where they're cultivating their minds, that's a matter of policy. How our Department of Education conducts itself with regards to children, with regards to young adults going to colleges and universities, that's a matter of policy. Is it possible that we have the sin of partiality playing itself out in who we are typically rebuking, if we're rebuking the poor brother who comes in wearing shabby clothes, we're putting it all on him as if this is all a matter of 
his not trying hard enough, his not being faithful enough, his not taking seriously enough what God has said. All the while, oh, ho, ho, let's not, let's not at all talk about the rich brother who comes in wearing very, very fine clothes. Let's not talk about the person of means who sets policy that affects supply and demand. I'll leave you with this thought. The church in America can do better. The church in America can confront false teaching and a false gospel from the liberals and the progressives. The church in America can rebuke so-called woke Christianity because it's not Christianity. It's heretical. It's lawlessness. The church in America can rebuke the social justice warriors and also not throw babies out with bathwater. The church in America can think more holistically about the whole counsel of God and pursue righteousness and call the people and our leaders alike to repentance and to obedience to the goodness of God, the mercies of God, the forgiveness of God, but first repentance, humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord. The church in America can turn away from showing partiality to those who are rich, those who are wealthy, those who are powerful. The church in America can turn away from a social gospel that would promote Marxism, which is satanic. You can, according to Richard Wormbrand, as soon be a Christian and a Satanist as be a Christian and a Marxist. And I agree with Richard Wormbrand. The church in America can get that straight. The church in America can stop making a big show out of giving money to the government or giving money to the church. The church in America can repent of being pharisaical in announcing giving with trumpets and tambourines. The church in America can pursue righteousness and obedience and the blessings of God that are both spiritual and material because God is God over all creation, not just the immaterial part of us, but the material part of us as well. The church in America can call the nation to righteousness because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The church in America can consider it part of our purview, what the average rent year over year increase is in this country and how that affects the ability for individual breadwinners, heads of household, to provide for the needs of their family. That's a New Testament idea. He who does not provide for the needs of his family, especially those of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. But how can it be that the church would only tell the man himself to do this and not issue a corrective, not pay any attention, any heed whatsoever to those who set policy, extorting the fruits of his labor. Now, just think with me for a moment, just briefly, about how much a household like mine, a family like mine, pays in three years and nine months of renting a house in Greeley, Colorado for $1,975 a month. Quick math, 45 months, $88,875 over the course of three years and nine months. 
almost $90,000. Do you realize that the house we're renting right now was last sold in 2009, according to Zillow? Last sold in 2009 for $171,800. November 4th, the day before my birthday, 2009. According to public records, it was sold earlier in the year, in April of the same year, 2009, for $100,000. Now, that might be a clerical error. I don't know. But let's just say it was $171,800. Do you realize, even with closing costs, filing costs, since 2009, this house has not improved in condition. It's not a fine wine. (laughs) If these things in this house have not been fixed up, maintained, replaced since 2009, with the exception of the flooring on the main floor, which I had to threaten a complaint to the state for, do you realize that the amount of rent that I've paid in the last three years and nine months alone would be a 50% down payment on this house 14 years ago? Just think about that, right? Just think about that. Let it sink in. When those are the market conditions, when that's what is happening to the cost of having a home, and when we see our currency being devalued, when we see tax rates going up, opportunity being regulated out of the country into other countries, into our competitors, countries in the name of social justice, when a family of 10, my wife and I, plus our eight children, a ninth on the way in November, actually do on what will be the 14th anniversary of the last time this house was sold, a family of 10 with a single income earner, myself, a single breadwinner, head of household, could have put 50% down on this house 14 years ago. And now, such as it is, I'm being told, just be glad your rent's not going up by 15% this year. It's only going up by 7.5%. Tell me what I'm supposed to do about that. Just work harder, right? Make those bricks without straw. At what point do we say, this is actually oppressive? These market conditions are set by policy. They're influenced, they're manipulated by policy. These are oppressive and actually a moral issue. I would say that those who push back on the pro-life crowd and they say, Oh, you say you're pro-life, you're against abortion, but what about the other things, right? What about the other things that have to do with a child being wanted and loved and provided for and protected and cared for? You don't care about those things. And I say, I do. We should. I'll argue for it. You know, somebody says, oh, Garrett, you're arguing for homeschooling, but you don't understand, right? How are young unmarried mothers supposed to homeschool their kids? There's no father in the mix. You don't care about that, do you? You have no sympathy. I say, oh, I do. If I didn't have to work so many hours per week just to keep us above water, our heads above water financially and keep paying the rent and the utilities costs, which, oh, by the way, that's another thing. In the summer, those peak rates, FUBAR. But somebody says, well, you're not being sympathetic. And I say, I I am. I am sympathetic. We need to homeschool a whole generation of kids, have a whole bunch of kids, homeschool them, teach them the Bible, 
Teach them to read from the Bible. There's an idea. Prep them for running for office, serving the public in office, enacting just and righteous laws and policies, hating bribes, ruling with fairness and impartiality, building houses, planting vineyards, planting gardens, working with their hands, aspiring to live a quiet life, minding their own affairs. Let's raise up a whole generation of kids like that. And you know what? Maybe, just maybe at a certain point, we will have a turnaround comprehensively. Don't come to me. Don't come to me with the navel-gazing as if that's the most righteous, pious, spiritual, godly, Christ-like thing I could possibly do. Not when Jesus had compassion on the thousands that came out to hear him teach and fed them. Not when he had compassion on those who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the demons. Not when Jesus saw those who came out to hear him teach and they were sick and lame and blind and deaf and mute and he healed them and forgave their sins. We've got to think more holistically. We do about the whole counsel of God, about God caring about economics, not just, but yes, if that's what it takes to do the Thessalonians thing. First Thessalonians 4, at the tail end of the section titled in the ESV, A Life Pleasing to God, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. If we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, which is possible, otherwise we wouldn't be called to it. That would be cruel. We have to think about what goes into that. What is conducive to that? What builds the capacity for that or destroys the capacity for that? But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. More to come. Stay tuned. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Share this with somebody you think would find it interesting and beneficial and thought-provoking, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.